Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so glad you're with us today. As you know, we all share one reality. There isn't a religious reality, a scientific reality, and all sorts of different kinds of realities all on top of one another in the same place. Uh Uh-uh. In fact, both the religious community and the scientific community get our one reality wrong because in both cases, their basic assumptions are wrong, which leaves you and me to do what we can to seek reality on our own. And in fact, we've had some surprising successes in recent years in puzzling things out. This is in large part because we can pull information from here and there and fit it together without the need to adhere to either religious or scientific dogmas. A lot of what we've learned has been pulled from the testimony of people we used to think were dead. So I was astonished a year and a half ago to come across a scientific American contributor named Dr. Bernardo Kastrup, a traditional scientist, mind you, who had reached a lot of my same conclusions while approaching the study of reality from a purely scientific perspective. Dr. Kastrup is extraordinary. He is a young Dutch scientist with a PhD in computer engineering, including artificial intelligence. I, you know, I don't even have real intelligence, never mind artificial, but he has a PhD in it. But he has also got a second PhD that was awarded in the spring of 2019 in the philosophy of mind and ontology. Now, for those not familiar with the term, ontology is the study of existence. That's what you and I are about as well. Dr. Bernardo Castro has worked as a traditional scientist in some of the world's foremost research laboratories, including the European Organization for Nuclear Research, which is CERN, and the Phillips Research Laboratories, where, I don't know what this is, but something called the Casimir Effect of Quantum Field Theory was discovered. He's written lots of academic papers and books on science and philosophy, and he's a regular contributor to my favorite humor magazine, Scientific American. I have learned so much just from the little bit I have read of his work there. His website is bernardocastrup.com, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-O-K-A-S-T-R-U-P.com. When you go there, you can entertain yourself for hours while you also learn so much. Welcome, Bernardo. I'm so glad you're with us today. Nice to speak to you again, Roberta. It's a pleasure. Now, some of our listeners will have heard one or both of your prior Seek Reality interviews, but please tell us again briefly, for those who don't know you, how someone who began as a very traditional scientist became drawn to studying these non-material matters. Yes, I started out as a computer engineer. Uh, My first job in life uh, was at CERN, the, the big accelerator laboratory in Switzerland, um, so my work had a lot to do, a lot to do with physics, the nature of reality, but I, I approached it from, from a, an engineering perspective. And uh, after that, I started studying or doing work on artificial intelligence. And of course, you start thinking, you know, uh, I can reproduce human-like intelligence, but can I reproduce consciousness? And that's yeah. what got me started in the philosophy of mind. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly, that's what it, what trips everyone up. They think, oh, well, it somehow consciousness is going to arise naturally if you make it smart enough. And of course, that's been proven emphatically not to be true. It makes no conceptual sense <laughs> to think that uh, by, right. by emulating the information processing in a human brain that you will also copy 
consciousness. I mean, I can simulate uh, kidney function on my computer, but that will not make my computer pee on my desk. So conceptually, <laughs> it makes no sense. I love it. It's tr- I'm going to use that. I'm sorry. I think that's really funny. <laughs> yes, absolutely right. So, but but still, they've tried, and I read, I love, frankly, Scientific American. I call it a humor magazine only because they're so clueless about so many things, but I do love the magazine, and I've been watching for 20-plus years as they've been so sure that they were going to be able to do this. You've, you've watched, you've read it too, and little by little, they've pulled back on their enthusiasm until now they're saying maybe we'll never understand consciousness. They've stopped saying they're going to be able to make a machine that can become conscious. I don't know. Have you seen articles like that lately? It's it's not a focus now because consciousness uh, from a uh, materialist perspective has no applications. It has no what scientists call uh, causal efficacy. It, in, in other words, it doesn't do anything. What what does something is data processing. Of course, that's not the case. Consciousness is what does everything. Right. Uh, but from the materialist perspective, it doesn't do anything, so it doesn't have an application. And funding go to where the applications are. And uh, so the focus now is on developing artificial intelligence, which can be measured uh, you can see whether a machine is operating intelligently or not, whether it's doing what you expect or not. But it's in any case impossible to verify whether all that smart data processing is being accompanied by experience, whether there is something it is like to perform that data processing. You cannot know that from the outside. You can only know that by being the machine. And since we aren't, since we are ourselves, we can never know. So focus now is on intelligence, not artificial consciousness. Yes, and it's, they can create, of course, all the intelligence. I'm sorry, I'm still giggling about your joke. I think that's really <laughs> funny. I will get serious now. Okay, you say the term for what you're working on is metaphysical idealism, which is, uh, is this a standard term for the notion that reality is mental rather than physical? Pretty much. In the Western tradition, idealism is the standard uh, term. It should be ideaism, but it doesn't sound good. So traditionally, it has been... Ideaism! Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, You're right. That doesn't work. Okay. All right. So, the, 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 the approach is reality is made of ideas. That's, that's the idea. But um, we call it idealism, and it's metaphysical to differentiate it from... Uh, political idealism or ethical idealism in which we want to live in an ideal world of beautiful values. That's not what's meant. What's oh. meant is the nature of reality. That's why we call it metaphysical idealism. I will never forget it now. It made no sense to me before, but it does now. Thank you for that. The thesis for your second PhD is a companion document, I understand, to your 2019 book. And I love this. It's called The Idea of the World, a Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality. Boy, put it right in their face. You certainly did with that. It's amazing to me that Radboud, is it, am I saying it right, Radboud University? That's right. Which is, which is a very prestigious Dutch institution, I understand. It's awarded you a PhD for discovering that mind underlies everything. I saw, I saw your, dis- your, your, your uh, defense of your, your dissertation. You clearly said that. And they all sort of pulled on their chins and, and, and were very serious. And they went out and they came back and said, you did it. <laughs> and you got your PhD. Did you know in advance that was going to happen, that you, were, you already were, were going to get it? 
Once you get to the point where your defense is scheduled, uh, they have already read your thesis, the entire committee. So you know that you you have to do something pretty wrong to oh, okay. to not get it at that point. So you have been already uh, evaluated before. But the fact that they awarded it to me doesn't mean that they all agree with what I said. Uh, it only means that uh, I argued for what I said in a proper in a substantive way. So my case is a serious case. It cannot be dismissed, but it doesn't mean that everybody agrees with it. That's not how it works. Yeah. Well, I, I saw that because there were questions and some of them were, were tough. I thought you handled them beautifully, but it was clear that this for some people was a radical notion when to me it seems kind of basic and I know it does to you as well. Were, were, you, were you influenced by um, uh, Dr. Max Planck in your thinking? Because he was a revelation for me. No, I was not. I mean, I knew about uh, no, the, the fathers of uh, quantum mechanics and uh, everything that happened in the turn of the, the 20th century. Uh, but I knew about that from, from the science side of things. I never looked at what uh, the founders of quantum mechanics and, and Max Planck uh, had said from a philosophical perspective. Um, so I knew the equations, I knew the theory, um, but I was not familiar with the fact that many of those guys um, had idealistic, metaphysical idealistic views as well. <laughs> they did. Let me, if that's the case, let me be the first to say Max Planck is, he's applauding right now from the bleacher seats. <laughs> he agrees with you completely based on what he said during his life. Isn't that wonderful? Everyone, if you don't know, Dr. Planck got the 1918 uh, Nobel Prize in Physics as the father of quantum mechanics. He's about as big as you can get in mainstream science. And uh, and he, he was saying these things, many of the things you say, um, uh, almost a century ago. Quite remarkable and wonderful to see that you are doing so well in this field. You don't just say these things and write these things, but you have the courage to go in and defend them at a good university and get a PhD. I really applaud you for that. Thank you. I have nothing to lose. So. <laughs> well, but, 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 you know, you're, you're, certainly your self-respect is something that's important. I don't have an academic uh, job. I earn my living doing uh, uh, high-tech corporate strategy. And uh, in that world, uh, they don't care what my metaphysical views are, so long as I do proper strategy that leads to business growth. So I, I don't really have anything to lose. I'm not trying to uh, get tenure. Um, I'm not trying yeah. to publish a bunch of papers, although I did, because you know I had nothing to lose. So why not? Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything to lose. So I say what I think. I think what you just said is such an important point. Everyone, please pay attention to that. Because what he's saying is that if he were trying to be a serious researcher, a serious professor at a, at a significant university, he couldn't do any of this. This is why we have had the blinders on for a further century after they should have been removed because the scientific community just won't won't look at this. And um, another thing, I, I, we may not get through to everything I'd like to talk about today, so the next time I'd like to talk very much more specifically about materialism because that's that's what they're, they've decided that's the hill they're going to die on and they already are dying as a result. But anyway... Everyone, Bernardo Castro's second PhD defense was uploaded to YouTube on April 30th of 2019. Please just Google that term, and I'll put it also in the notes. 
and it'll come right up. And it's not long. It's in English. And it's fascinating to watch this young man talk about the science of the future as if it were the present. It is a wonderful, easily understood, just really amazing um, experience to watch his thesis. So I hope everybody is rather defensive his thesis. I hope everybody will do that um, because you'll learn so much. Um, all right, so I've been studying afterlife evidence for 50 years. Part of the reason I love what you're doing is that you've come to the same conclusions I have essentially, and from a scientific perspective, I didn't think it really was even possible for someone to do what you've done. I thought science was a lost cause, but it's not. No, I I that, think, no, it's amazing. I mean, think about what you're doing. It's amazing. Science, if it's done correctly, if it's done properly, and the method of science is followed uh, very strictly, strictly, um, it is metaphysically neutral. Science is the study of the behavior of nature, which is what you inquire into when you do an experiment. How does nature behave under this and that circumstance? And you can create predictive models, which we call theories, uh, to predict the behavior of nature. Uh, that's the basis of technology. Um, but it's difficult for people to practice science without some kind of metaphysical story running in the background that informs them of the nature of that thing that is behaving, uh, even though science does not inform them of that, but it's, it's almost inevitable that people have some story in the background. And the mainstream story is that what we are studying is matter fundamentally outside and independent of mind, and that uh, certain configurations of that matter somehow give rise to experience, which is an incoherent uh, uh, story. Um, but it goes unexamined and has been going unexamined for two or three centuries now. Wow. I think that's, I'm sure that's right. But that's, that's really a profound indictment of what's going on, uh, that they can't, uh, that, that they can't get, can't clear their minds and think of something new. What is consciousness anyway? How would you define it? I have a definition, but I don't know what anything about yours. <laughs> uh, it's, it's perhaps the one word, um, that we don't need to define because we all know it by direct acquaintance. Consciousness is the substrate of everything. It's the substrate of experience, and all you have is experience. Anything outside experience is an abstraction of experience. Uh, so consciousness is that whose excitations give rise to your entire inner life and therefore to the entire universe insofar as the universe exists as it is experienced. All right, that's pretty much what you said the last time I asked you this question. And I just was wondering if your thoughts had... But basically, you continue to, to feel that it doesn't almost doesn't need a definition because each of us experiences it individually. Oh, everything that exists, exists within consciousness, as far as you can know. Whatever is not in your or somebody else's consciousness might as well not exist because it's not experienced. So the point is, well, it's not really there at all if it's not in some consciousness, even if it's not your own. So it is the, the carrier of reality. Uh, it's that the thing carrier that of reality. Wow. Is, yeah, all reality you can know is carried in and by consciousness. Okay, all right, that's pretty profound, that's great. Okay, now you, you say that there is an, or you posit anyway, there's an omniscient, omnipotent mind at large, but it's not metacognitive, it's not an organized God, it's not self-aware. Are you still feeling that way, and why do you feel that way? 
I feel very strongly that everything is in mind or consciousness, even though not your or my individual mind uh-huh. or consciousness alone. I'm not a solipsist. I'm not saying that this is all your private dream. Yes, uh, there thank is, you. There is, there is a world out there. there. There is something happening out there that doesn't depend on you, but that something out there is in mind. And that transpersonal mind I call mind at large following um, um, Huxley. Um, so I'm very confident about that. I am as confident about that as I can be confident of anything. Right. So 99.9%. I'm very yes. confident of that because everything else is incoherent. If you really, if you really examine what's going on uh, with the alternatives, they are all uh, incoherent at some point if you pay attention. Now, I believe, and I'm not as confident, but I am. I'm very inclined to believe that this transpersonal mind, this mind at large, unlike us, is not metacognitive. In other words. It is not self-reflective. It, it, it doesn't think about its own thoughts. It's not deliberate. It, it experiences, but it doesn't know that it experiences. It's rather instinctive. Um, and that's why uh, the laws of physics are so stable, regular, and predictable, because instinctive behavior is stable, regular, and predictable. Um, so I, that's what I'm very inclined to think. Uh, but I'm not as confident about that as I am that there is a mind at large, whether it's metacognitive or not. But if we're aware, and, and awareness really is arguably the very essence of being conscious, if you're not aware, you, then nothing, you, you're not experiencing anything. If awareness is the very essence of consciousness for us, why wouldn't that be true of consciousness on the, on, on the grander scale? It's very difficult for us, and that's something already Schopenhauer already said 200 years ago. It's very difficult for us, because we are metacognitive, it's very difficult for us to imagine experience that is not metacognitive. In other words, experience that happens without you knowing that it happens. Uh, but we can mention a few examples. Um, um, 30 seconds ago, you were experiencing your breathing but you were not metacognitively aware of that experience. You were not telling yourself, oh, look, I'm feeling the air inflating my, my thorax and my diaphragm moving and the air flowing through my nostrils. You, you only become metacognitive the moment I bring your attention to it. But before, you were experiencing your breathing. Or if you choose a mortgage package, that's a deliberate metacognitive choice. But right. when you choose to, to take your first step in the morning with your left or your right foot, that choice is also experienced, but it's not metacognitive. It's not right. It's, you're not aware of having made the choice. I understand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And but could so you, you're saying that 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 overarching consciousness w- within which everything exists could be self-aware, but you just don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think self-awareness or conscious metacognition or self-reflection, it's something that evolved in us. Because we as organisms have had to survive in the context of a planetary ecosystem. So evolution has provided a great incentive for us to develop mental skills uh, that probably were not there to begin with in mind at large. Because mind at large has never had to survive within an ecosystem. It is the ecosystem. It's the one thing that exists. So I tend to think that our higher cognitive skills uh, have evolved as uh, as a function of the pressures of uh, natural selection and that's why 
my cats are largely not self-aware. They are not metacognitive. I think if mind at large as a whole were metacognitive, then a mosquito probably would be <laughs> metacognitive well, but, as well, but it doesn't seem to be. Um, another way to think about that, you know, research indicates that our nightly dreams, unless um, you sort of oh, you wake up within the dream, unless you have a lucid dream, our normal, regular dreams do not entail metacognition. We experience all that, but we only become metacognitively, metacognitively aware of it uh, when we wake up uh, right. by using the mirror of memory. Only yes. when we wake up and you think about that, oh, yes, I was having that experience. But during the dream, you just experience. So I think uh, the universe at, at large is the image of a dream, and that dream is not metacognitive, I think. And I, I respect your opinion. I, I, there's a whole other area that I'd like to talk again. I, we're going to have to do this probably two or three or four more times because uh, I'd like to talk to you more about what we've learned from this end that might inform what you're what you're saying today. But I'd I'd like to sort of let you know ahead of time what it is, and then we can really have a good conversation about it. But what what how, how do you address the fact that apparently the universe is uh, tuned to vanishingly tiny, um, uh, you know, cosmological constants. Just, just if things were even a little bit different, it would either blow apart or collapse on itself. Am I right about that? Is that something? Because that's something which we're told, but I don't. I'm not a scientist. That is correct. The universe, the, the universal constants, which, as far as we know, could be anything. They have the values they have. We don't know why. Um, they are fine-tuned to a degree that is hard to fathom. Um, and if they weren't fine-tuned to that unfathomable degree, um, there would be no stars, no planets, no galaxies, no life, no living yeah. organisms, nothing. So no, that no is us. my... Yeah, I think that's the, the most vexing question in science and philosophy today, and I don't have a good answer for that. I, you know who Rupert Sheldrake is, right? He's, sure. he's a Brit, or it, well, he has um, investigated the whole notion of the fact of the idea that the, content, the constants are constant and don't don't vary. But in fact, what he has found is that they're that they're frequently varying, um, and this is something science tries to cover up. Are you aware of that? Some some universal constants uh, may be varying. Rupert talked a lot about the speed of light, which now which now is constant because we defined it as That's a constant. Right. <laughs> so we can't change anymore. But why was no. it changing before? Yeah, we define um, measures of distance on the basis uh, uh, of the speed of light. So if the speed of light it w were to vary, then our definition of meter would vary such that the number attached to the speed of light would, would remain constant. But okay, that, that, that's one constant. There are many other constants that are even more exquisitely fine-tuned, and I don't think there is any evidence that those uh, are varying. I think it's very difficult to say that those have varied. He, he's done a TED Talk on this. I'll send it to you. Apparently, there are a number of them that have varied, and they've decided to just set all of them at a, at a, at a predictable value so that they won't vary anymore. But it seems to me if, that if they've varied, if any of them have varied in the past, that's, that is indeed a vexing problem, as you say. It's hard to explain without an intelligent, um, uncaused cause at some, at some level. It 
even if they don't vary, it's a very vexing problem <laughs> because right. it's <laughs> it's very difficult to explain why they have exactly the value that they must have in order for complexity to arise, including life. Um, yeah, it's uh, some people gone have gone as far now as to to basically introduce magic uh, into science to try to explain that, like the notion of countless multiple parallel universes right. uh, which have other physical constants and we just happen to be in the one that has the right ones because otherwise well we wouldn't be here to That's know right. it right. Um, it's it's a catch 22 really because there's just it, it's it's circular reasoning but they that they take that seriously don't they some people well it, it, they would argue it's not circular circular reasoning but um, uh, it defies <laughs> Right. Credulity. I mean, uh, it, there is nothing more incredible, literally, uh, than to postulate that there are countless, countless gazillions of parallel universes uh, for which there is exactly zero evidence. So, yeah, I don't like that solution. No, not at all. Because when you think about it, um, you'd have to it would have to be not just infinite uh, degrees of variation to the tenth or hundredth of a degree for each of the constants in a universe, but then there'd have to be enough universes where there were infinite duplications so that that you you had that one combination of constants. I don't yes. know how many there are. It's, it's, it's a number that you cannot fathom. Right. Um, and not only that, gazillions uh, uh, and gazillions of new universes are arising every infinitesimal fraction of a second. That, that's also part of that theory. So, yeah. Well. Yeah, there, there's a multidimensional infinitude of infinitudes. So, yeah, I don't like that. I don't think that's a valid solution. I think that violates Occam's razor, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. They would say it doesn't because they would say, well, the equations point to that. But, uh, well, the equations only point to that if that's how you want to interpret the equations. Um, so I, I think it does violate Occam's razor. Not only that, I think it's the greatest vi uh, violation of Occam's razor conceivable to the human mind. Well, that's a wonderful statement, and that's in, that's in fact true. I should just say for people listening, if you don't know what Occam's razor is, it basically says the simplest explanation is probably the right one. Is that if I if I done that correctly, or how would the scientist? That's put that's it? correct enough. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Well. Okay. So we we have this situation, and we are living in this universe, which is inside consciousness, and we're trying to understand as much as we can about what's going on. I. I personally think that, that as we start to fill in more of the spaces, which you are humble enough to, to not be trying to fill in now, I think that it's going to require we fill in more of that. But I, I think there are ways that we can talk about beginning to do that. And um, they may be wrong, but at least there are solutions that could lead us somewhere. But let's go back to the beginning. Given all of that, do you have any idea about what would have prompted matter to arise because the the big bang the big bang says what happened but it doesn't say why or even really how because it doesn't they, they actually are going back before the big bang now i know from my favorite magazine and uh there it's there's still no uncaused cause there's still no reason why it happened as it did you know why right the idea <laughs> no um it the idea of an ultimate cause is intimately attached to our conception of time. 
linear time that flows yes. in one direction. So yes. our, our understanding of causality is coupled to our understanding of the linear, uh, linear time flowing in, in one direction. Um, but there, there's nothing etched in stone saying that this is what time is, that time is objective and flows in only one direction. Actually, uh, th there are enormous disagreements in physics today regarding time. Some physicists would say that time does not exist. In fact, you can write all the equations of physics in a very coherent and self-consistent way without the variable t uh, for time. Really? Yeah. So, so they just they just mathematically reasoned it out of existence, basically. You, you can do that, yeah. Oh, uh, that can be done. Um, um, there are some people who say, actually, that space is an illusion. Time is the only thing that exists. That would be Lee's moling. And there are other physicists, the people working on loop quantum gravity, that say, well, time exists, but it's not fundamental. It's created out of certain microscopic quantum processes. Now, the moment the, the definition or the understanding of time uh, is on the table, it's not more, any more etched in stone, then our very conception of causality, of ultimate causes, might have to be revised. So the way I personally approach it is I consider the Big Bang a useful metaphor Okay, um, good. I, I use a, a useful tool of thought that allows us to make some short-term predictions um, that are long-term enough for our lifetimes, um, but I would not uh, take it up as a literal fact that happened, I don't know, 13.8 billion yes, years ago. Right. That, right. that goes too far. Yeah, not, not to put a fine point on it, but yes, exactly right. I think you're right about that. I have to say that your blog post in Scientific American on time was an, a tremendous help to me. Until I read that, I couldn't really think about time at all in, in, in a way that was productive. And since I read that, and I've applied what you said there, I have been able to think about some things that I had never really figured out before. And I'll share that with you too at some point. Um, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and can you summarize just for people listening what you said about time there? Because you had a, you had a car parked beside the road and that made such sense all of a sudden. <laughs> it always made, it all made sense to me. We do not experience the flow of time. We think we do because we experience something else which we then misinterpret in words and we convince ourselves in words that we experience this thing called, called the flow of time, but we don't. At any single moment, um, and I challenge you to find one moment in your life in which this was not the case, uh, you only have the now. The present, the present is what is in front of you right now. It's an infinitesimally small moment because yes. before you can grab it, it's, it's already passed. Right. But the past is a memory that you experience now. The future is an expectation about what you might experience later. And both that ex expectation and that memory are experienced now in this infinitesimally small moment that is basically nothing, but within which everything happens, the entire past, the entire future, and the present itself. That's our experience. It's like you park on the, on the side of a highway. Right. Um, the future is what you see ahead. The, the, the past is what you see behind. But that entire landscape is contemplated by you now. The future is an experience now. The past is an experience now. 
an expectation or, or a memory. And that's what we actually experience, a, a, a instantaneous landscape that we translate into the flow of time, a linear flow of time in which historical events hang, like hanging from a, from a line in your backyard. Uh, and that's the fiction. Uh, the way we interpret what we experience is the fiction. The experience itself is different if you really think carefully about it. Yeah, no, I, th I thought it was brilliant. I have to say, um, I, c I can't express it the way you do, but um, I, do, I do use it. And I think it's a very powerful way to understand so many things that before didn't really make sense in the greater reality, which is what we return to at death. And I want to ask you in a minute about that. In the greater reality that we return to at death, there is no time and there's no space either. I mean, it's just um, it's just endlessly now and here. Uh, but that doesn't seem to impair people at all. They travel to the end of the universe in that lack of time and that lack of space just in an eye blink. And I, that didn't make sense to me until I, until I read that, that post from you. So I'm very grateful that you wrote it. We've known, I mean, uh, since... Kant and Schopenhauer, who both said that time and space are, are well, I'm tempted to use the word artifact, but it's not the right word. These are uh, cate uh, categories of perception. Time and space are things that we impose on the world because of our cognitive modalities. It's useful for us to, to, to place things in this in this framework of time and space so we can make sense of the world. But both Kant and Schopenhauer uh, uh, would say that uh, time and space are not objective. They are not out there. There is yes. something out there. It's a unity. It's all here and now. And we sort of spread that unity in that scuff internal scaffolding of time and space so we can sort of digest it, so we can, we can have some, some hold on it. Otherwise, we would be overwhelmed. So this idea is... is Two, three hundred years old. It's not new. Actually, it's much older than that. But in the West, it's two or three, two or three hundred yes. years old. That's part of what I, I mean, you, you really are kind of a polymath. You, you have studied so many different things and used them to form your, your larger concepts. Um, I, I think that's very helpful and very few scientists seem to do that. They seem to be, you know, stuck in the, in the material world completely without the, these larger ideas. It's because a lot of science can be done without these larger ideas. I mean, uh, it, there is no doubt that time and space are very useful concepts. In other words, they are useful fictions. Uh, they may <laughs> not be uh, fundamentally true, but they, they certainly help us predict things because we operate within this, this, this uh, cognitive scaffolding that we project onto the world, but we all operate within that cognitive scaffolding, so we can play a lot within that scaffolding using our predictive theories. So time and space and all these things, the Big Bang, these are all very useful fictions that we should not just throw away, but we should be careful taking them for fundamental absolutes. That's, that's where things get, get tricky when you mistake a very convenient fiction, a tool, you mistake it for something fundamental. Uh, that, that's where things go wrong. So do you ever talk to, to, to scientists who are working in the traditional fields about all of this? Do you, do you ever have conversations with them? Uh, less now. Um, when I was in that world, of course, that was my entire life. 
Um, now it's less. You didn't talk about it then. You didn't talk about it with them then over lunch. You, you would be amazed how science is specialized uh, now. Um, I used to work at CERN, which is sort of the you know the the yeah. St. Peters of, uh, of of the Church that's, of Science. Yes, that's exactly uh, right. The St. Peters of the Church of Science. Very yeah. well said. And. Um, even there, people are so highly specialized. You know, they, they focus on a very specific problem. At CERN, these problems are experimental. They are not theoretical. About 1% of CERN's budget uh, goes into theory. 99% goes into experiment. And people, they, they, they take up a certain question for which we have no answer, and they go work on that year after year to try to come up with an answer for that very well-defined, restricted question and uh, their daily lives are very pragmatic uh, in that sense the question is formulated within a, within a context of assumptions and boundary constraints that they do not have the time or the energy to go and examine and question and be critical about no they formulate a problem statement on very pragmatical grounds and that's what they go work on and if you if you go have lunch at CERN and then the, the the, the, the conversations will be about this very well-framed uh, 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 problems that people are trying to work, a, work out a solution for. So there aren't really, at least not often, uh, uh, conversations about uh, the fundamental and ultimate nature of everything. Even when we were uh, hunting for, for the Higgs boson, actually, my time we were, at least I was more interested in supersymmetry, which we didn't find. We sort of... Right. Uh, missed out on that. Uh, But even talking about the Higgs boson, we talked about the Higgs boson as a specific pattern of energy distribution on a detector, and we wanted to find that pattern. There wasn't a more fundamental discussion about, you know, what is the meaning of the Higgs boson? You know, it's, uh, it corresponds to a field, that field has a drag, which explains inertial a mass and no, no, those those discussions you don't have every day. Maybe you have occasionally uh, during a wine party, right. uh, but uh, every day it's it, no, it's a very pragmatic thing. That is so sad to think that they're working in this rarefied atmosphere where they should be able to to really let their imaginations fly, and they don't have any imaginations really much at all. That's very sad. These are human beings, Roberta, who, who, this, this is their job. This is what they get paid to do. They, they wake up at seven and at eight thirty they are there, you know, and at the end of the day they go home and then that's it. The work is left behind and they, they are evaluated for this, for, for the discoveries they make, the papers they publish. They may get a salary increase or not. They may get a postdoc or not. So at the end of the day, you know, we are all just performing tasks here and then occasionally you have a lucky bastard like me who performs a certain task during the day gets paid for that and then in the evening goes think about the fundamental questions uh, uh, because it's fun you are very fortunate indeed we are fortunate that you're living your life this way because I, i think that i think that what you are doing is going to lead us to finally get past this prison of narrow scientific thinking. I was going to ask you about math, too. I was talking not long ago with a British, a retired British physicist who was fascinating. I mean, I don't know from physics at all, but um, he was very down on math, and he said a lot of physicists are down on math uh, because it, it ultimately, he said, 
Ultimately, you can make the math say anything you want it to say. I just like the people who, you know, ruled time out of existence with their math. Is that true? He was pretty, pretty disgusted, actually. I'm sad for for a retired gentleman. Yeah, it is. This is my personal opinion. I know many share this opinion. It is rather baffling that um, that um, the results of abstract mathematical thinking like hyperspaces and non-Euclidean geometries, these things that uh, are completely abstract. We, we don't see these things around us. And, and it turns out that they have direct applications to physics. Uh, this is a little bit you know, discombobulating because yes, yes. why should this be the case at all? I think I have my personal explanation. I think what's going on is that um, mathematics is based on Archetypes. Uh, these are psychological archetypes of rational thinking, of reasoning, and uh, and we have access to them because we are thinking beings. Our mind is based on these templates, these archetypes of, of patterns of thinking. But since the world outside is also fundamentally mental, in my view, uh, the world outside also comports itself according to the same patterns of thinking which appear to us in the form of natural behavior and that's why mathematics corresponds so well to the to the, the world uh, outside in my view um, so this correspondence I think is is can be construed as evidence for metaphysical idealism um, there was a paper published in 1960 by Eugene Wigner um, about you know, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics uh, uh, to, to, to describing uh, the laws of nature uh, in physics. And I think we can get out of that dilemma by just understanding that nature is itself mental and it comports itself according to the same archetypes as our own thinking. Uh, yes. But it is, it is a formidable thing. I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as your friend and say, well, you know, you can make the mathematics say anything you want. <laughs> he was pretty disgusted, to, I have to say. To, to some extent, that is true. Um, I, I'll give you a counterexample that uh, goes in, in his favor. Favor uh, Back in the 90s, uh, in the phys- physics community, well, until not so long ago, we had this idea of supersymmetry. I'm not going to explain what it is. It doesn't matter. It's called SUSY, supersymmetry. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the motivation for that is that um, the mathematics underlying SUSY is so extraordinarily beautiful. It is so symmetric. It, it, it's so uh, uh, aesthetically pleasing that we thought this has to be true. Nature <laughs> right. has, to, it has to behave like that. And right. guess what? We haven't found it. We haven't found it in the places where we thought we would have found it. So sometimes um, the beauty of mathematics doesn't translate into reality, but it, it does so enough other times that it is a relevant correspondence that we have to make, make sense of. <laughs> wow. That all is really amazing. You would think that the very perplexity that arises from under, trying to understand why why math is a way, which which strikes me as sort of an invented, you know, numbers. People haven't always even used numbers. It's not like a disco- like a discovered science, like chemistry or something. Why it would apply this way if consciousness doesn't underlie everything? You would think they'd wonder about that. 
But they haven't even thought about consciousness that way, right? So they, the question never even comes up. As you point out, they've got very narrow questions to answer. Well, um, scientists, uh, particularly physici- physicists, they are very aware of this miraculous correspondence between our mathematical reasoning, our own mathematical logic, which exists in our own minds, uh, and the way nature behaves. I mean, why should there be this correspondence? I mean, I cite, I cite an example. If you, if, you take, if you measure the perimeter of a circle, um, uh, you, you get that value uh, pi, if you, you know, certain relationship between the perimeter and the radius uh, yes. uh, of a circle. Um, so you would think that this number pi applies to circles because that's where you derived it from. But guess what? It applies everywhere. Pi is in models of population growth. Uh, but oh. pi is everywhere. Things that have absolutely nothing to do with geometry. So this oh, my a, word. I, it, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, so physicists are aware of this and they are puzzled by it. And that's why Eugene Wigner, Nobel uh, Prize uh, uh, laureate, that's why he called it a miracle, uh, the miracle of the appropriateness of mathematics. So the step they don't make, they are aware that there is this correspondence, the step they don't make is this means that the world itself is mental and that it's resting on yes. the same archetypes of thought, the same templates of reasoning as our, as our own minds are. Our minds are continuous with the world outside. And that's why there is this correspondence, because it's the same thing, behaving in more or less the same way, according to the same templates, but viewed from different angles, from different perspectives. Now, this, this latter step, that is too big a step still for, for most scientists, I think. Oh, my goodness. Well, we've come to the end of our time again. It always goes too fast, but I have a lot more questions. So we're going to do this again. Um, everyone... Please remember that Bernardo Castro's second PhD defense was uploaded to YouTube on April 30, 2019, and all you have to do is Google his name and second PhD defense, it comes up. Please watch it, enjoy it. I've watched it a number of times, and I always get something more out of it. And his website is bernardocastrup.com. So, and, and I have to also say, there, you know, click on the YouTubes and go around the website because there's a lot there to learn, and it's always enjoyable. He makes learning, you, you know, you really are a teacher. I think you've, in some ways, missed your calling, Bernardo, because you, you make things so accessible. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for being here. And what, what do you want people to take away from just from today? Anything? Be curious and uh, and don't don't buy into the mainstream story without being critical of it, because it is uh, virtually certain that our mainstream worldview today is wrong, just as the worldviews of many of the generations that preceded us were. <laughs> That's absolutely true and so profound. Thank you so much. Dear friends, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Wow, hasn't this been fun? I'm so glad you could be with us today. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began, you never will end. And when you really get what that means, it changes everything in your life for the better. Next week, our guest will be our friend, Dr. R. Craig Hogan. He'll be here for the 30th time. I can't get over it in seven years. Each time we've discussed a different topic, too, because as you know, since the scientific community is still so relentlessly materialist that it is clueless, as Bernardo just pointed out about a great many things, more open-minded researchers like our wonderful guest today are doing the work that an open-minded scientific community should be doing. 
Craig is another researcher who's breaking new ground in a, a less traditional scientific field. And next week he'll be giving us another update. And this week we've been enjoying spending time with my dear friend, the extraordinary Dr. Bernardo Kastrup. He's been here with us for the third time. Bernardo is a Dutch scientist. Yes, he's been talking to us today from Netherlands. Thank you, Skype. He has been here for the third time, as I say, to talk about... What is important for all of us to understand is true about reality, but which science is clueless about even today. He has two PhDs, one in computer engineering, very traditional, and the second, awarded in the spring of 2019, is in philosophy of mind and the study of our existence. Couldn't be bigger and better than that. Bernardo is a brilliant, brilliant young man, as you see, with a gift for making some very complicated and profound ideas more accessible. And his groundbreaking work, which is going on now, so perfectly demonstrates the primacy of consciousness that I, as I've said before, he's my candidate for an eventual Nobel Prize for his consciousness theory of everything. I'm sorry, Bernardo, I'm going to say that till it's true. We all know that in the end, the truth is going to win. And I think it's going to happen in a preference cascade. There'll be a January in some year when everyone still knows that everything is material. Then by the end of that same year, it will be glitched. Glaringly obvious to everyone, even to the smallest child, the reality is consciousness-based. And in fact, there is no matter in the sense of solidity, of solid matter. Everything is consciousness. Of course, most of us, especially me, I'll be in the bleacher seats by then, but I'll be cheering the truth on from there. Go to Bernardo Castrop's website and learn and enjoy. It's bernardocastrop.com. It's an education all by itself. As you know, my own nonfiction books are a lot of them. Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, The Fun of Living Together, and very soon, The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. There are books for children, too, and all my adult books books are, of course, available as audiobooks. If you want to talk about any of my books, about what we said today, about anything at all, you can always contact me through the green contact block on robertagrimes.com. I answer every email. Today, the one that I answered had the wrong email address. I was pretty disgusted with that because I wrote something long and beautiful that now will never see light. But I will answer you, So even though it takes a few days. So please give me your correct email address and go ahead and ask your question. Past episodes of Seek Reality are available on webtalkradio.net and in a lot of other places at this point. Many people just get the app that's available in the iTunes App Store. It's available for free, and uh, that sort of solves the problem. You'll get all the episodes. My dear friends, meanwhile, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy, please make the most of this coming week in our one reality, knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you, most of all in the universe, you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.